welcome to this week's edition of the Nymon Be Praised. I'm Jack. And I'm Joe. And we are here yet again to uh, talk about, um, well, a very, a particularly cherished era um, amongst fans and amongst Joe in particular. Oh, I um, absolutely so love it. Yeah, so considering you kind of threw me in the lurch last week and just kind of told me we were doing a topic that we had not previously discussed <laughs> the following week. This is <laughs> how <laughs> this is how well prepared we are. Yeah. Why don't you introduce the topic? So because uh, I'm just following along with whoever's listening. I don't really know what's going on. Well this week we are going to be taking a little walk through the Russell T. Davis era of Doctor Who. Uh yes, yes that's right. An era, it's probably, it's probably my favourite era of Doctor Who across the entirety of uh, Classic and New Who. Where would you say it falls for you? Oh, it's definitely up there for me because it's the version of the show that I first fell in love with, really. This, this was your um, entrance into of, Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, as it was with, you know, a lot, so many people now, even people who probably... Uh, grew up around the time the classic series probably found their way into the new series a bit more strongly uh, than say the latter day McCoy years um, before we start I have a question for you because I oh, yes. I remember you saying to me that at the time you struggled with the kind of soap opera elements or, or the kind of the romance angle, the kind of uh, the more emotional material of the Rusty Davis era. But I get the feeling that over time, that's actually something you become a lot more comfortable with and enjoy more now. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I don't think it was necessarily the emotional family stuff that, you know, I think is possibly come to characterise the era a bit too... I think it's become the stereotype of the era, I think, mm. uh, and possibly blinding some of its other very meticulous merits. Um, but certainly I think when I first came to sort of into the show and I kind of found out about the classic version of the show, I think uh, I was like, you know, I'd be reading on Wikipedia that, that prior to the new version, of uh, to Russell's version of the show, the Doctor never fell in love with people. And, uh, you know, he never fell in love with, like, you know, um, Tegan. Um, <laughs> well, if you listen, if you read some uh, essays by Paul Cornell and other people, he was falling in love all the time. We just weren't aware of it at the time. Right. Well, indeed, maybe it was all in the subtext, but <laughs> it wasn't in the subtext of a Wikipedia article. Do you reckon um, there's a, sorry, I'm Kate, complete tangent. Do you, do you think there is a case to be made for the Doctor being in love with any of his companions prior to Dr. Grace Holloway when he you know, gave her a big, fat, wet snog? I'd say potentially I mean, two. Potentially two. Or two. Mm. I mean, you could definitely say Sarah Jane, I think. Oh, I wasn't going to say Sarah Jane, actually. But I'm not sure if, you know, having, you know, a companion piece like School Reunion has kind of coloured my interpretation of that dynamic. Yeah, I know. I know a lot of people really, well, we will talk about School Reunion, but I know a lot of people found that very odd 
following on from like classic era Tom Baker and Liz Sladen that oh she was in love with him what was that in oh, no, I was going to say um, Romana 2 and that's purely because the, you know the relationship spilled onto the screen from real life if you if you're telling me it's that if they're not in love then we have different definitions of love my other possibility is actually Joe Grant now, I know that's weird. Oh, really? But it's just that re- his reaction when she falls for another guy and then the way he leaves that part. I don't know. There's just something about the Green Death that makes me think, wow, I think he had stronger feelings for her than we previously realised. Do you, do you not think it's like, you know, necessarily that kind of... Um, paternalistic kind of attribute that we associate with Pertwee's Doctor in particular. Like, uh, as a, it's not... Although they do say in the episode that she is falling for a younger him. I don't know, there are parallels made between the two characters. It's true, it's true. I, uh, yeah, I could, I could see that. But of course I... it's more explicitly done in the new series. Like, God, God, that would be so weird if the Pertwee era was about Joe Grant and the Doctor falling in love. <laughs> That'd be so weird. Uh, imagine Joe Grant and the third Doctor on the other side of like, that wall in Doomsday. Take me back! Take me back! I love you! The Doomsday music playing overhead and you have John Pertwee going, I don't have a start just to say goodbye. <laughs> I imagine, no way, I'm going to take this even further. Imagine it being like a Hartnell and Dodo. Mm, what? <laughs> I don't have a star to see you. Oh dear! Oh, we're going. We've got. Sorry, we've already been sidetracked. Seriously, sidetracked. You can you can do that with any compa- with any doctor and companion. You can do that with like Jamie and Patrick Trumway. It's like, <laughs> sorry, Jamie, I, <laughs> I burnt up on star just to say goodbye. Oh, Mel, <laughs> Doctor, Mel. I love you. <laughs> okay, sorry. <clears throat> Probably. Oh no, that wouldn't happen. Mel would be too busy bump, bump, bumping around Cardiff Bay in a little time bubble. I could see it being the Doctor and the Rani, though. <laughs> a love story Rani. across the ages. The Rani, I burnt up a star just to see, say goodbye to you. <laughs> you meddling fool! <laughs> okay. So, anyway, that's I'm going to try and get this back on track. So we are going to take a wander through the Rusty Davis era. Talk very briefly about each episode, um, how we find it. Um, I kind of thought the format could be, um, if you're doing a rewatch, yeah, uh-huh. would you watch it or would you skip past it? So that's that's kind of like, you know, because certainly... Oh, when... Go on. For a second, I thought you meant the entire era. Would you watch it or would you just skip it? <laughs> there are certain eras where I would certainly give that some consideration. Yeah, but just episode by episode. Yeah, yeah Episode by episode, yeah. Because like, I'm sure you've done rewatches and, you know, you've been like, oh, God, really? I've got to watch this one again. Okay. So, let's start with Rose. What's your opinion of Rose? Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, 
Um, oh, blimey, we're really going for it. Yeah. Uh, actually, before we get before we get going, I should say, what's our Naimon quotes of the week? Oh my word, I can't believe we forgot to do that. We're eight minutes in already. Um, okay, so mine is going to be a very predictable, very cliched one, which is just two words: weakling scum. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, funny, funny you should say that. My um, my quote is also by the exact same character. Not the co-pilot. It is the co-pilot, and it's at the end of part one when he's when he's on his knees going, "No, not my one." No. Do you think? Um, do you think he holds that uh, that that or held that up on his CV very highly? The co-pilot. I, I yeah um, I think. In my heart of hearts, Probably I not. wish that he did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Rose. Yeah. What do you think of it? Yeah. Rose. Um, I know you have apprehensions to it, but um, weirdly, I, given how much I love the era, yeah. Yeah, I I quite like it. I think you know you look at that opening montage, and it still holds up that first kind of whirlwind tour through Rose Tyler's life. I think it's one that, um, I, that I've I've actually. Oh, sorry, we're completely talking over each other. You go. Um, okay, I'm sure, I'm sure you've got a good point there. I'm sure we'll come back to it. Um, I hope. Um, <laughs> uh, but it takes you on a whirlwind through Rose Tyler's life. You're introduced to you, you. It lets you know everything you need to know about the Doctor. It has a burping bin in it, uh, which. <laughs> Do you, you like that? It's entirely. Uh, do you know what? I think it's worth it. I think that gag is worth it because over 15 years later, I think, Russell T. Davis on Twitter uh, during the, the re-watching of Rose is shouting out to the entire world, everybody who's watching Rose, uh, let's burp at the same time. Let's do it. So I think for the fact that he was going like, the burp's coming up, come on, get ready to do it. So that's the burp two, the, what, the two, the two uh, simulators around the world, the day of the doctor and, you know, the burp. Everyone yeah, around yeah, the world burping at once. Yeah, I think that, I think, you know what, if, what is technology for if not to... <laughs> Indeed. I, I tell you, I think it's, it's a really good or introduction into the world of Doctor Who, because it really mm -hmm. does present him as a mystery um, to be certain. It does give you some, but not all of the answers. However, I really struggle with with the plot, and I know it's that's not what it's all about. Mm -hmm. But the plot just feels so thin, and so the solutions so obvious and. It's almost like, yeah, okay, we just want to show you that there are aliens in Doctor Who and there are monsters and there's the antiplastic and that's over and done with. It's the character stuff that's really important and that's the stuff I like. But I just, I find, yeah. I find like in the second episode, he marries a really good plot and loads of really good character work far more effectively. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there's a lot of really good character stuff. And like, you know, everybody talks about like, you know, the the turn of the earth speech that like oh, Christopher Eccleston yeah. does and, and does it so well. But there's also other stuff like, you know, when the doctor um, is like swanning about the Tyler flat and he's just picking up like, you know, TV gossip magazines going, oh, that never works. He, um, 
he's gay and she's an alien. Um, do you think? Um, do you think Christopher Eccleston seems comfortable in his first episode? Um, I think that's a good question. Actually, I think, largely speaking, yes. Yeah, I think so. Too. I, I think uh, definitely as far as the drama goes. Um, I think in the comedy, he's obviously still working it out. I think he kind of he kind of gets more comfortable with that, doesn't he, as the series goes on? Yeah, but there are still moments like there, there's stuff where you know maybe the comedy doesn't work quite as well, and Chris Beckles in the tiny feet, like you know the bit where he's I, I mean I love it when the bit where he's got the Auton hat oh, up against his yeah. neck and, he, and he's gurning literally like McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then on the other hand, uh, the bit where weird kind of sugar babe, babe, plastic Mickey oh, is, um, it's so embarrassing. Is, like that, that is just like everyone's worst fear of what Dog 2 is going to be when it came back. Sugar babe, babe, plum sugar, honey. However, I think Billy Piper's a complete revelation and oh, yeah, nobody she... was expecting her to be that good. Nobody. Mm. Oh yeah, from the get-go, she's quite brilliant. Um, she clearly, you know, is the right pick for the role because even though she had, like, you know, it, it's so easy to forget now that she's like, you know, a, I think Tony Award-winning actor. Mm. That, you know, at the time, you know, she was a pop star and a well, pretty, a has-been uh, pop star as well. Like. Mm. It, and that everybody's going, like, she bring back this, like, British institution. And she does. Yeah. It's such a, it was such a, a kind of out there choice, given all the actresses at the time. But, wow. I mean, talk about making the right choice. The public absolutely fell in love with her. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, sometimes, I, I think sometimes it's forgotten, but so much of that episode hinges on because we've talked about like you know how christopher eccleston you know is in some ways demonstrating why he's a good pick but also still finding his feet um there's even more pressure on billy piper i say to get that right because rose makes the incredibly savvy decision of framing the whole episode from her point of view and it's not the story of the doctor falling into her world it's the story of rose falling into his world Mm -hmm. um and I don't think she did that. find her. I, oh, sorry, I, I don't think she did find her feet. I don't think she had to find her feet. I think she was just there. She was on it from that first episode. Yeah, I think you get like the world that Russell has built, this kind of grounded working class kind of background that he, he that is strong from the get go. Um, well, to be fair to to uh, Christopher Eccleston, though. This is the first time Russell Davis has written for The Doctor, whereas he could write Rose Tyler's in his sleep. Yeah. And you could almost arguably say he had written a version of The Tyler's in something like Damaged Goods, which was his first Doctor Who book. And he'd been writing, I mean, I uh, you know, sort of um, families, uh, kind of lower class fam. God, is that terrible to say? But you know what I mean. Uh, working class families um, mm. in dramas for years. So he kind of he had he had that template, and I think he kind of he got that right from the off. You know. 
Yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily that, you know, he... Because, you know, I, I think mixing, you know, kind of everyday life with Doctor Who, although it's now a staple of the show, it, it is quite hard to do. And I think it's you can't always do it successfully. Um, uh, but, like, I think he, he knew specifically how to write the ordinary world that most people could relate to uh-huh. in a way that... Uh, could bleed into Doctor Who. Well, do you, do you think that's the only way that the show could come back by having it all kind of filtered through the ordinary world? So, so it's something that we, you know, we're Rose. We can all relate to the journey she goes on because she represents us. I think so. Yeah, I think if Doctor Who had come back as Time and the Rani. You know, just the TARDIS being blasted and landing on the Yeah. Or even if it had been, you know, a remake of, say, I don't know, The Daleks in 1963. Yeah. I don't think it would have, I don't think it would have had that same impact. It's um, like, it's a specific journey, that first series, isn't it? It's kind of her journey throughout the series. Well, and his. But it kind of starts, we, we, we start on her journey. Hmm. And you're very much aware that, you know, it's the journey of these two, of Rose Tyler and this very kind of war, of this kind of struggling doctor and how they both kind of bring each other out in the best way possible. Um, so in that way, I think the character stuff in Rose really sells it. I, I do kind of agree <laughs> with the monster stuff, uh, with I the just, Auton. Stuff. I think a lot of the execution is of that episode especially compared to, I mean, it's not fair to compare it to what come later, but obviously it's Doctor Who looks so good now. You go back and watch Rose and it, you can see they're kind of trying to find a way to make this work and to realise it. And they falter in that first sort of half a season. They, they falter in a few places. I One thing I will say about Rose, though, is that as much as it is about reinventing the show, it is also about reintroducing the show and it reintroduces. And I think it's telling that it reintroduces the show through one of its most iconic moments, which is kind of a re a rehash, a very stylish rehash of the autumn kind of slaughter in spearhead from space. And it demonstrates, and it kind of shows that like, you know, you know, even though Dr. Who is kind of laughable, this is literally a bit from an older episode, and it works just as well, I mean, dramatically it's a, yeah, and it's, it's r- scarily. Ridiculous, but it's a bloody massacre. <laughs> so exactly. Someone gets his head blown off. I know, and I, I would also like to add that although Rose has never been one of my favourite episodes, I read the book, the novelization that Russell wrote, and I loved it to pieces. Yeah, I did too. Uh, and it certainly it took the bare bones of that story. God, the ending. There was there was like um the climax featured the the, the wheel in London coming off its hinges and going into the Thames. He really added like some brilliant details to that book. Yeah, and it had like you know like you know yeah, I think at one point like it was the people who run the the, the shop that Rose is in, and they're all really wealthy. And they're trying to swindle all the employees out of their kind of benefits that they're entitled to, and their kind of plastic surgery um, yeah. uh, implants come alive and kill them. Isn't there a bit where someone's um, boobs burst? I swear. I think so. <laughs> when, all, when all the plastic comes to life. 
I, I actually, I probably would say the book is the best version of that story now. Maybe that's heresy to say. I don't know. I don't think so. I think the book is fantastic. It's like such a window. I think the books of the novelizations are such a wonderful window into how the writers see this episode. Because as soon as I read Rose, the novel, I was like, I, I see why this is such a good story. Um, but if you're taking the episode on its own merits, it's still a fabulous um, introduction into the show, I think. To the point where they literally kind of did a, a, a redo of it in series 10 with the pilot. Yeah. I feel like there is an energy and a, a weirdly a confidence right at the beginning that uh, that this is going to work. Even though Rusty Davis said he wasn't sure if it was going to work, he wasn't sure it was going to catch on. It's like, right, we've got one chance, one series to get this right. Let's just go for it. And I think it's, um, I think it's telling as well because I've read interviews where he's. Um, he said that, you know, that, uh, at various points over the years, there are two things he would change. And it, originally, the one thing he said he would change in the episode was Rose Tyler's bedroom because he thought there was too much pink in it. <laughs> okay. Too much pink. Uh, that's the thing. Yeah, it's just like no real girl from London would have that amount of, like, a pink bed, a pink rug. To pink be wallpaper. fair, that flat changed every time it appeared. I swear it grew every time we, we went back to it. Um, and the other thing um, I think he said was, uh, I think this was when he was writing the book, and he said it was a it was a joke so funny that he wished he could go back and put it in the episode, which is after the Doctor and Rose have been struggling over the uh, plastic Auton arm that's been choking the Doctor, and they kind of crash onto her, Jackie Tyler's bamboo table and shatter it, and she runs into the room and sees Rose Tyler kind of slumped on top of the doctor and she says, Rose Tyler, you tart. <laughs> that would have been great. And he said, I really wish I could go back in time and put that joke in the episode, which fair enough. Fair. Should we should yes. we move on to I have I have this strange feeling we may only touch on series one in this particular episode because I know how much you and I can talk. So maybe we maybe we'll do series one here and we'll do across over the time the four series as we go because uh, yeah, yes we have we'll managed to talk for twenty five minutes and we've only gone past Rose. Um, what would you give Rose out of ten? And I know you're not really a marker out of ten, but just for the just for this. Um. Seven. Uh, I'd give it a six. Wow. I'd give it okay. a six. And the reason I'm asking for a score is because I want to compare our opinions to those of the good folks and reviewers from IMDb. Oh, no. They, um, there's there's, there's a, a, a kind of an average score for every episode. And usually there's between sort of five and 8,000 votes. So it's a good kind of proportion uh, in the voting. And Rose comes in at 7.5. 7,259 people voted, and it's a 7.5. So, so you're kind of on, on the level with, with everybody else there. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, don't do this to me, Joe. I can't live knowing that I'm out of sorts with the IMDb population. <laughs> okay. I'm going through my daily life. 
someone will stare at me like, I know. Um, whilst making my coffee or that something man like there, that. That man's got a unique opinion. How dare you? <laughs> the end of the world. The end of the world. Joe, why don't you kick us off? Oh, the end of the world. Actually, it's one of my favourites of the year. It is... This is this is then Rusty Davis going off and saying, right, this is everything that we can do. Crazy aliens, mad jokes, um, like a, a scenario that really gets your attention. The end of the freaking world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got like a, a whodunit plot inside there. It's got some really creative deaths. Mad, mad aliens. Cassandra, the face of Bo. Uh, What's that little blue one called? The little blue one in the seat? Oh, the Mox of Balhoon. <laughs> Mox of Balhoon. Um, but with it, you've got all the emotion that was in Rose. In fact, I think the emotion is better handled in The End of the World. I think Rose's culture shock is really well done. Um, I love the bit where she has a go at him about the translator circuit, and you get that first mm. sense that he's truly running away from somewhere where he's like, this is who I am right here, right now. This is all that matters. Um, you have mm-hmm. the, that scene at the end where he tells her about the time war. So there's more stuff uh, about like, the, the running arcs in the seas. It's, it is a jam-packed episode, but it's really fun. It's really pacey. It's incredibly well-realised. And I just think it's delightful. Absolutely delightful. How about you? I think I'm of a very similar opinion because I, I love it to bits as well because it's it's nuts. It's mm. absolutely bonkers. Like, you know, for any accusations of, you know, a lack of ambition in episode one, episode two is like we're going to uh, a year so distant in the future you have to put the word apple in it. <laughs> um, That's a great point. It's like so far in the future, we've started using fruit as a emotion <laughs> of the year. Um, um, and uh, like, it's it, like from the get go, it's like it sets the tone. It has the doctor like juggling this kind of ball in the TARDIS, that he, and he's just like, mm. and he's like teasing her, like the new Roman Empire. Isn't that a wonderful that? scene? Like, to, 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 to take you through the possibilities of the TARDIS, isn't that a wonderful scene where they're so excited, oh. the pair of them? Yeah, and, and like it's such a wonderful little moment where he's because he like every time he's only adjusting it by like a split second. Yeah. Uh, by like it like the 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 time rotor kicks in for like two seconds and then he stops and he's like it's like he's going this isn't even everything this this ship can do we're only just taking the little steps and, and I then love it when she's like, when she's like um <gasps> what's out there. Like she is us. We we are Rose at that point, aren't we? Like mm. we're off on an but adventure. Also, it, but also, I think it's nothing quite as you know reductive as having you know the companion is the audience surrogate. Therefore, the role of the companion is just to ask the questions because it's it's much more involving with Rose Tyler. She yeah. wants because she goads the Doctor on. Uh, and because we want to, we're like, go on, show us the real future. Show us something cool, mm. which is exactly what we was like. Yeah, give us, you know, give us your best shot. Also, I don't think we've had that level of culture shock. I was about to say since Ian no. and Barbara, but I'd probably say since Tegan. I remember when Tegan went in the TARDIS, she was really like 
screwed over about it. But you know, it's, it, it got to a point where that where in the classic series it was like, oh yeah, it's, it's big on the inside, but the out. Ooh, let's go and have an adventure, you know. And this really oh, okay. drives home again the, the the thrill of it and how scary it is, you know. Yeah, I think for me the moment I always come back to. It was a moment that really hit me when I first watched it because, on the one hand, it's so, it's like, it's a silly episode. It's got such a mad sense of humor. Really? I think that's why some people struggle with it as well. But it's also got, in amidst this kind of silly, wacky humor, it's also got this very mind boggling existential premise of taking you on your first trip to watch the planet burn. And yeah. see the end of the world that you're standing on, which is huge. And the moment I always come back to is when Rose Tyler is kind of, she's done her call, the, the universal call to her mum. And Jackie's said, it's just like, and she calls her and she just, it's the most banal, ordinary conversation about like, you know, it's a, it's a Wednesday, you know, I'm just doing the, it's a Wednesday. Shot for a bloody washing machine. That's how banal it is. <laughs> Well, exactly, yeah. And then Rose hangs up hangs up the phone and she's just like, you know, I'm standing in, you know, a time period and I'm dead. I'm dead in this time period. Yeah. It's um it's the way it juggles uh the humor and the emotion, I find. And and, and th- there's a kind of confidence in shifting tones. Most shows take years to get that confidence. I remember with something like Buffy, it took a good while before it kind of would uh, switch between drama and comedy effortlessly like that. And the end of and in the world, just the formula's there. They, they've, they've got it. Yeah. And that's, and that's even before that they asked the audience to invest in a talking tree woman <laughs> and the story, <laughs> a piece of skin with lips. Yeah. Played by Zoe Wanamaker quite marvelously. Fantastically. Okay, so how would you rate the end of the world? Uh, eight. Is that a thing? I was going to go higher than you. I, I would confidently give this a nine and say it's one of the strongest of the season. Wow, okay. I love it. I, I, so, I, I always feel like this episode is um, essentially a modern-day Graham Williams story. It's camp as hell. Uh, funny, imaginative, um, lots of good character stuff. It's it's the closest I'd probably say as you'd get to one of those uh, kind of like the tone of City of Death, Pirate Planet, something like that. I love it. The, I, uh... Where do you think the people of IMDb fall? Oh God! Oh no! Oh, uh, we're, we're, don't tell me like. Two episodes in, we're already out of step with them. Well, 6,333 people have voted. And the score is very close to yours again. 7.6. Oh, okay, okay. God God help me on the day where I let the people of IMDb town and I give it a score lower than what they give it. Well, that may be coming up. 
Next up, we have yeah. The Unquiet Dead. You Ooh, go first this interesting time. Interesting one. Uh, Unquiet Dead. I haven't watched this one in a very long time. I remember you said, oh, we're going to review the entire Russell Z. Davis era, and I probably responded to that by watching no Doctor Who at all. <laughs> I watched a scene from every story. I probably should have done that. So I'm going off this is when commitment. I laugh for it. But it's it's a it's a cracker this one. It's it's very much I think Mark Gatiss after the League of Gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got a really and it's really definitely Mark Gatiss in his kind of um, uh, comfort zone. Yeah, it's in, it's in, it's definitely in his comfort zone of like gothic macabre horror. Yeah. Like it literally begins with a corpse rising up and strangling <laughs> some to death, and then screaming a ghost out to the camera. But with um, some jokes in there as well. It's like, ah, oh, the stiffs are walking again. Yeah, there's some there's some terrific jokes. I seem to recall. Like, I think my favorite is I feel like is the joke everyone goes for. And I think possibly this might be a Russell joke. Go on. But I love it anyway, which is when they when they think they're going to die, and the doctor's got is and the delivery is spot on. Where it's like uh, I've 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 met Helen of Troy. I pushed boxes at the Boston Tea Party. I've been to World War Five, uh, and now I'm going <laughs> to die in the dungeon in Cardiff. Yeah, that's that. That definitely sounds like Rusty Davis. Mind you, I, I feel like probably this season more than the others, he probably had a hand, a strong hand in every episode. Mm, oh, absolutely. <coughs> Character-wise, dialogue-wise. There, there's a kind of a unity to it all, isn't it, despite the different tones of each episode. Yeah, and but, but the tone changes are deliberate, and you definitely get... And this is, you know, I think it's a cliché model now that whenever you introduce a new companion, you go for one episode in their kind of setting, then you go do one episode in the future, and then you do one episode in the past to introduce yeah. them to the different tones <laughs> and time periods that the show can offer. That definitely uh, happens here, with Amy, doesn't it? That, uh, Amy has the Beast Below and then Victory of the Daleks. Clara yeah. has... I can't remember. Good grief. She... It's she Series 7, that's why. I don't think she has a historical. She goes from... <coughs> no, Cold uh, War. That, that is oh, a kind of historical. Oh, yeah. Kind of, yeah. It's the 1980s, I think. Uh, oh, kind of. I was born in the 1980s. How dare you? <laughs> a historical. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Anyway, moving on. Um, before I offend my co-host and we cancel this podcast on the spot. <laughs> Go on. Um, um, uh, uh, yeah, so it's a structure that has become quite a, a, a convention for the show, but here it's so carefully chosen. Do you think it's done here so more to show the audience the possibilities of the format, whereas later on it's to show, you know, the audience know the format, it's to show the characters in, in later examples? Oh, yeah. I think it's it's after a character piece like Rose and End of the World, it's definitely showing off a little bit. This is the beginning of the celebrity historical. Mm. It's literally because the classic series I don't think bumped into historical figures too much. Whereas the new series is boldly going, we can do Charles Dickens. We're doing this on episode three. Okay, here's a question then. Should 
Because this was very much the formula of the historicals throughout the Rusty Davis era. And to be honest, throughout the Stephen Moffat era as well, the kind of the celebrity right. historical choose a, a well-known figure from the past and tell quite a fun story around them um, with that kind of them at the heart. Should that be the way the historicals went? Is it not offering like a very romanticised version of history and those characters? I just say it because... Obviously, in the Chibnall era, the historicals have become a bit darker, a bit more educational and a bit less kind of frivolous. Um, I think it depends on what you expect a historical to do and what you want it to do. Um, like, you know, last week I was talking about, like, you know, how the Viking horns were an anachronism and they were an indicator into the tone of the story mm. and the type of story it was. Uh, so in a way it feels almost contradictory for me to then suddenly go, no, historical accuracy always matters. But like, um, do you think this, this is a way into the historical stories uh, the same way like Rose and having an identifiable figure was a way into the series this is a way into the historicals by kind of uh, taking a historical figure and, you know, like turning them into a celebrity. Um, I, I think in this case, it's a good choice for Charles Dickens because he wasn't literally a celebrity in his lifetime. Like, you know, <laughs> he would go around. He was basically a, a right, an actor on top of a writer because he would go around doing recitations of his books as, in fact, the episode presents. I think so there is, there is a fair amount of historical accuracy within, or fact within there, even though it is a, you know, a fun kind of ghost story. Hmm. So I think in the case of... Sorry? No, no, I was just saying, well, you are, you're still being educated because I'm, I'm sure there are some children that know nothing about Charles Dickens. And this is just oh, enough absolutely. for you to maybe ask some questions or to go and find out more. Yeah, I, I do question how many children got to the end of The Unquiet Dead and then picked up a, uh, a copy of David Copperfield, <laughs> which is 700 pages long. I just said, yes, I'm going to read this book. If one child did that, then they succeeded. Then Mark Gates, bless your heart, you did it. It's you the same it. with Pip and Jane and that vocabulary. One child picked up a dictionary to look up spurious morality. Well. Good, yeah. Anyway. Um, I feel like the historical, the his celebrity historical isn't problem isn't a problem for the series in this particular instance because firstly the it's a version of historicals that's being introduced for the first time, and the choice of of Dickens itself is quite savvy mm. because he was a, a celebrity in his own time and he's a celebrity in our Actually, time. That's a great still. point. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Um, it, I think the persistence of it becomes, of that particular style, becomes a lot more challenging for the show later on. And it, it's one of the things that the Chibnall era reconciles with a lot more. Um, so, like, when by the time you're up to Agatha Christie, you're asking yourself a question. You're, it, it depends on what you want. If you want, if you want a historically accurate piece, then maybe you come up with something that critiques her a little bit more, that critiques the kind of stereotypes in her books and the problems of her as an actual person in her own time. Or probably, you know, very topical, 
victory of the Daleks, we probably might have had a bit more of a go with Winston <laughs> Churchill, for example. Yeah. That's the that's the obvious one. Any room Whereas, than the one they took, I'd say, with that episode. Well, ex- <laughs> well exactly. So I don't think... Uh, although in that case, you could say there's a, a point in and of itself to be made out of the fact that Winston Churchill actually had no problems allying with the Daleks. Um, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> but um, generally speaking, I think it's a question of what you want... The, what kind of what you want to be say what kind of what you want to be saying about history? I, do you know what I'd say? I'd say the mainstream. Oh God, I'm generalizing, but I'd say the mainstream audience that aren't Doctor Who fans want a celebrity historical. That Doctor Who fans want uh, a Rosa or Demons of the Punjab, something a bit more hard hitting and a bit more something something to kind of be proud of. You know, a story a story mm. that's making a point. Something. I see something prestige. Whereas I think the general audience want to laugh, you know, they want to be entertained. They, you know, and th- and that's here. How, yeah. How would you rate this I one think, then? Oh, sorry. Go on. I think I think you're onto something there. I think the general audience know that they're are probably quite smart in knowing that if they want to find a documentary that's critical of the works of Shakespeare, they can find that very easily. But you're not going to go to Doctor Who to no, find that. Exactly. Whereas I don't think Doctor Who where, has is in the time slot either to kind of truly tell an authentic picture of any of yeah. the, the celebrity uh, historical characters yeah. that they choose. So uh, I think you know when it choose so, and I think Doctor Who fans quite want it, always wanted to be telling this authentic picture of history, mm. um, and I think. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with either approaches. Well, even in the Chibnall era, which gets a bit of a bad rap for being like, ooh, overly educational, you get Rosa and Demons of the Punjab. But you do also get Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror. Yeah, that's true. And that skips a lot of details about him in that story yeah. I've seen. So, mind you, it's interesting because yeah. if you even skip back to William Hartnell's era where obviously historicals were quite dominant, you've got stories like The Crusade, which are kind of very accurate and detailed and are kind of telling a very serious story. And then you've got a celebrity historical like The Romans, which is, you know, a farce and a comedy with Nero right at the heart of it as this insane belching horny bumbling idiot mm. you know but he's, he's very much it feels like it's very much in the mold of the new who celebrity historicals in kind of tone and, and, and yeah. how it gets this focus yeah and, so sh- and i've seen the romans as well the show's always had the ability to kind of do both approaches has it? Has, have you do you think it's ever done a serious historical in the style oh in the style of, say, Duke Demons of the Punjab or Rosa? What, the classic series? Yeah. Oh, certainly, yeah. What about The Massacre? That's, that is it. that is a cold, grim, fact-driven story that ends with, you know, Stephen leaving the TARDIS because the Doctor sends a girl that they've had the adventure with into a massacre at the end of it. It's... Mm. Um, what else? The Myth Makers starts off as like a comedy. That ends up as a... Yeah, I'd say there's quite a few. Marco Polo, that's one that, that's... I I have a question for you, actually, that I think about it. 
Um, do you think Doctor Who in the 21st century has any obligation, historically speaking, to be educational? To a point. I think mm -hmm. I think it, it has, yeah, it has the responsibility to, I don't know, I think it has more of a responsibility to entertain because that is the purpose of a television show, I would say, like Doctor Who, for a family audience. I think it should be historically accurate to a point. Uh, I think it would be quite troubling if a child watched something like The Shakespeare Code and then went to learn about you know, William Shakespeare found out he wasn't this amazing rock star. But, you know, yeah. I don't know. Does that make the Shakespeare Code any less of a decent episode? I don't think so. You, you've yeah. studied the Shakespeare Code, haven't you? <laughs> yes, I, I, I do. I thank you for alerting to our potential listeners that whilst I was at university, I did at one point have to write an essay about the Shakespeare Code. You're very welcome. But but we will get to that Thank one. You. So I would say, yeah, I, I think will. I think it does need to be ac accurate to a point, but not not like a hundred percent historically accurate um, to the detriment of providing a good time. Right. So it's the difference between you know, like if Pompeii erupts, it has to erupt, but you don't have to care so much about you know a street vendor going, "Ooh, lovely jubbly." I mean, do you think there's any children out there that genuinely think that Pompeii erupted because the Doctor and Donna were underneath a volcano pushing a switch in the spaceship? You know what? Well, God bless those children that do. But does that make it any less of a really decent episode? I don't think so. And and do they get enough of a glimpse into, like, Roman society? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, that's true. Oh, God, I, I have so many questions I want to talk about, but I feel like well, yeah. this is a whole different podcast. Um, okay, why don't you rate The Unquiet Dead, which we have somehow stopped talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but we're talking about the kind, of, the, the, the kind of genre of history that it introduced into the show. Oh, that's true. Um, that is very true. Well, in bullet points, very quickly, mm. why would say the things we like about this episode? Oh, okay. Well, so, I was going to say to you, I actually find this episode quite unmemorable now. Um, I think really? I preferred it a lot more at the time, but upon a recent rewatch, I, I still think it's one of Mark Gatiss's strongest, which says a lot about his episodes to come. Um, but I think it's kind of... All the elements are quite good that make up the episode, but I just find in series one where there's a lot going on, and a lot to draw your attention, this is one of the more unmemorable episodes. So I don't think it's bad. I just think it's a little forgettable. Anyway, Interesting. I, I, I think when I first watched it, and I was probably in the target demographic when it first beamed out, it really hit me. Because um, uh, I think I'd never... I, ne I, I, was a, I was a big wimp as a kid, so seeing something... And dealt with the macabre and the dead really kind of spooked me. So I think it has that lingering impact on me. Um, I, I like the way, I think I, as far as the historical is concerned, I really like the way it approaches Charles Dickens. Uh, I think he gets a wonderful little character story here. Of it's a lovely of performance. I'll, I'll definitely say that. Oh, absolutely. And it's very sweet. I think it introduces the, the way 
the series likes to tackle. It, you, it, you kind of get a run of Vincent and the Doctor here in some regards where, you know, Charles Dickens leaves at the end and he's so full of life again. And, of course, he passes away um, a couple of – I can't remember when it's set, but it, he passes away not long after The Unquiet Dead is set. And you get something like that in Vincent and the Doctor, which is like you can – travel back in time and make someone happy, mm. but you can't necessarily change the outcome of their life, which is one of the tragedies that the new series deal with. So you get a lot of the a lot of the bones of great Doctor Who episodes, uh, historical episodes, I think you can find here. It essentially sets up Torchwood as well, doesn't it? Cardiff and the Rift. Well, a massive, does, yeah. a massive element of Torchwood. And you do have one of the great stars of Torchwood in yeah, this episode. In yeah. fact. Although we didn't know any of that at the time, and neither did they, to be fair. Hmm. I, I remember it also produced a very, a very strong branch um, from Lauren Smiles on the internet oh, back dear. in the day as well. Lauren Smiles um, having a rant on the internet. Well, there's an incredible surprise. Yeah. Um, and I think he, uh, it was one of those um, sort of essays where he made a lot of good points about the faults of the episode. And I think whilst they're fairly true, I think they were unintentional on Mark Gates's part. Um, but essentially, on the whole, I think it's a very enjoyable introduction um, to the historical, the celebrity historical. And I, th- and I, you know what? I love the fact that it had the balls to introduce the celebrity historical on such a macabre black comedy note. And what would you rate it? Um, seven. And I'll give this one a six. So I'm surprised I'm coming out lower than you most of these. Yeah, I know. Interesting. And our good friends from IMDb, 5,934 people voted for this one. And you're in step with them again, um, but they're a little higher than you. 7.5 is the average for this one. Oh, what can I say, Joe? I'm, I'm a man of the people. I, know, well, I always suspected as much. Maybe, maybe somebody should give me to the, uh, the keys to the show. Clearly, I'm in touch with the common man. Next, we're moving on to what I consider to be one of the great underrated two-parters. In Doctor Who. Oh, boy. <laughs> Aliens of London and World War Three. Uh, now, I I think this is where Rusty Davis' vision for the show cements. Um, it's a really confidently told story. I love, I love the fact that uh, it's heavy on the family drama. I love the fact that this is an a this is not an alien invasion. This is a a family, a pretty inept family at that of aliens that are attempting to hang on. What is it again? Blow up the Earth and sell it for scrap by putting a pig inside a spacesuit inside a cranky old spaceship, crashing it through Big Ben. Oh man, it is just it's a wickedly ambitious story. I think. It's really funny. Um, it cements Mickey and Jackie as characters to watch this series. I think they're handled brilliantly here. Um, I think Eccleston gives potentially his best performance to date here. Um, his relationship with Rose is given a lot of focus. I, th- I think I think this is deliriously enjoyable. And as for the Slovene, they're brilliant. 
They are brilliant. The design is brilliant. I, I, it could have been something that was like completely horrific and scary, and they actually went for something that was quite funny looking and silly. And I don't know. I, for me, it just really works. Hmm. There you go. Okay, I've waxed lyrical enough about a story that everybody hates. What do you think of this one? Can you get past the farting? Um, the, um, look, to be honest, uh, anybody who kind of goes, um, it's very, it's complicated. I feel like I'm not going to hold anybody to the to the to the fire for saying, "Oh God, not the episode with the farting aliens in it." What's wrong um, with farting aliens, though? Oh. Is, is Doctor Who a show that should appeal to children? Yes. Is that something that would make children laugh? Yes. So does that not make the cynical, dull adults in the audience the one going, mm, it's the one with the farting aliens? Mm. I suppose it depends whether or not on whether the children, uh, uh, on whether the children audience find it funny as well. That's um, true. And I've never watched this with a child, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. Um... But um, I think, you know, I'm not going to resent anybody for saying, oh, God, I can't, I don't, can't put up. But, uh, you know, at least in the uh, talking about the design of the Slovene, I think there's actually something quite brilliant about it, that you have these really kind of weird, clunky, clunky by 2020 standards as opposed to 2005 standards. You have these kind of clunky aliens with weird baby faces, and they look really kind of cute mm. and silly. But, but they're actually, like, a really hardcore gang of criminals who would blow up a plane. <laughs> well, I think Rusty Davis gets that, like, in the school playground mm. thing, because children could go and play the Celine and pretend to be zipping open their heads. And... Yeah. But, see, this is this is the thing about the episode. I think the, its reputation for being the one with the farting aliens blinds it to a lot of the good stuff in it. It reminds me like, what it reminds me of in that respect, Invasion of the Dinosaurs. It reminds me because. All anyone can think about in Invasion of the Dinosaurs is those terrible puppet dinosaurs. Oh, I don't think they're terrible. Everyone thinks they're terrible. And yet, there's a story with real substance and, and a point and, and kind of a lot of political commentary and anger in it. And I think yeah. Aliens London and World War Three is the same. There's so much more substance than farting aliens in it. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, everybody says that, you know, there are farting aliens in the story. I think everybody, <clears throat> a lot of people forget to mention that the dead body of Tony Blair is shown <laughs> in the story. <laughs> and Downing Street's blown up. Yeah, Downing Street is blown up. You also have, you know, the uh, Slovene Prime Minister who I think the human body that he's taken in is like some, what is, what is he? He's like a representative from a sugar company or something. Yeah. Um, I th it's, uh, it's probably not exactly that, but he's from very low status, and then he's going on the news. I think this is the story that introduces the news as yeah. a big Rob Davis convention, like which he, which he had used through. before. I remember he used that in the Second Coming. I would go on to use yeah. again, but it's such a useful shorthand, isn't it, to kind of show the scale of what's going on. And it does it in a way that we all can get and can empathise with. Mm. Um, but, like, you know, you have literally, you have someone on the news doing, like, the famous kind of analogy for George Bush going, like, 
they have weapons in the sky that can destroy us in 45 seconds. It's not exactly subtle, um, is it? But it is it, it is making a good point. Yeah, I so but also like there is a, a real kind of satirical bite to it in some senses, but you know, it has such an astonishingly good idea at the when the doctor and they materialize in this council estate again. At the oh, very beginning of the episode. I know what you're gonna say, yeah, yeah, and, and she turns up in Jackie's flat, Rose does, mm. and and there are consequences for having left. Never been done before. Never been done before yeah. in all of these years. The, the thought and that you can think of a fresh idea like that to do with a companion. Yeah, and you literally see, you do literally see the, the have, you, have you seen this girl posters in Jackie's flat? Mm. And that's a Before, it's always just been, you skip off with them into the TARDIS, and then they they end up somewhere else, and you don't ever see who gets left behind and the consequence of it. That's that's a really engaging new angle. Mm. And even with the monsters, like everybody talks about how silly the Slovene look and how dated the CGI models of them look when they're doing oh, a high height yeah. Um But I think at the same time. The bit, scenes where they're just, it's just the human actors and they've got the blue lights flickering and they're unzipping their heads and you can't see what what's peeling off. Yeah. And they're peeling off. That's a gr- I mean, it's a grim idea, isn't it? It's, it's sick. It's, it's a shame really that when the bodies are on the floor, they're clearly just like really terrible, like uh, rubber suits. Because <laughs> if it was like a real bloody mess, that would just be horrible. And it's weird because this story also is the story that technically reintroduces Unit as well. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, and it sets up Harriet Jones for the future. That's true. And what a marvellous character from the get-go. Absolutely. It has two of my favourite scenes in all of Doctor Who in it, this two-part. One in each episode. The the first one is um, I'm the only one on planet Earth who knows they exist. And I just love, when I first watched that, I was like, this is the best show ever. And it does, the fir- for the very first time, it does the entire human race knowing about aliens. So it shifts the landscape of Doctor Who in a really significant way. Because after that, uh, pretty much whenever we come back to Earth, there are mentions in Love and Monsters of the previous alien incursions, in The Sound of Drums, so it's like it's suddenly telling a narrative on Earth. So that seems not only brilliant and funny and spectacular, but it is also uh, shifting Doctor Who in a new direction. So there's that one. Sorry, go yeah. on. Shifting Doctor Who, shifting Doctor Who one horn beep at a time. I know. They had to kind of stop it at um, Last of the Time Lords where they, you know, wiped out 10% of the population. That was something that had to be rewound because that was probably taking the story a bit too far. You've got to think, what a set piece. This is episode one, two, three? Episode three? Four. 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 Yes, I I can't even count. And I've been in this podcast for like an hour now. We are almost an hour into this podcast and we have only reached episode four. Jesus Christ. Um... Uh, sorry, the nine month will be praised. Um, <laughs> uh, 
but like just think about the fact that it's episode four and they blown up Big Ben yeah. essentially. The other scene is the narrows it down scene in World War Three, oh, where so the, the so dialogue funny. is so fast, so witty, so funny. The the actors are so confident, and you're like, "Wow, this show is firing on all cylinders already." It's it's a I love that scene. Every time I watch it, I get a bit excited about how right they got it, like so early in the run. And the, sh- and the way it's shot is so weird because it, it literally builds up to the revelation of a complete nonsense word that nobody in the audience has ever heard before, which is Raxacorico Falipatoris. It literally. So, how would you rate this episode? Where, where does this fall for you? I feel like this is one of those episodes I need to rewatch. Um, so I'm feeling. I really want to be generous, but it's it's either going to be a six or a seven. Ooh, ouch! I'm going to be kind, and I'm going to say, uh, "Oh no!" I was, if I was kind, I, I would give it higher. I'm, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna give it six point five. Okay. I would probably give Aliens of London a seven and World War Three a nine. So I'm gonna I'm gonna come somewhere in the middle and give it an eight. Which is okay. uh, oh that's no, my second highest, wasn't it, after End of the World? And what about the good people of IMDB? <laughs> what about the good people of IMDB? <laughs> Six thousand people. Uh, and it's it's uh, uh, the same mark for both episodes. 7.0 out of 10, which is higher than I would have suspected. Oh, there you go. Because I, I thought conventional wisdom was that this one wasn't very strong. Well, the good people of IMDb are here to tell us, no, it's half a, half a point better than what we were thinking. What the hell does conventional wisdom know, eh? I don't ask me. We're the one running a podcast called the Nine Mon Big Praise. Uh, let me ask you a question then. What? Uh-huh, go for it. What would a brand spanking new series of Doctor Who after God, what was it sixteen years not be the same without? Um. Hmm. Oh, do you mean in two thousand five, oh, or just in hypothetically any period? I was just trying to segue into you saying a Dalek, but never mind. <laughs> Oh, well, too. Oh, that would have been terrible because I would have said Billy Piper. Oh my God. <laughs> and then you'd be forced to say, "Well, funny, you should say that this next episode features Billy, Billy Piper." <laughs> so, oh, come on! I started off with the last one, Dalek. Oh God, it's the, one of the big ones. We haven't tackled one of the big ones. Well, we've done Rose. Okay, maybe I'm wrong. Um, uh, Dalek, okay. You, um, okay, uh, quick uh, question. Do you think Dalek, yeah. which is based on the Big Finish Audio Jubilee, do you think it is a better told story or it is the superior version of this story? Oh, no. Oh, I think it has the better focus of the two stories. 
well, it's only 45 minutes long compared to two hours. Mm, but I think Jubilee is more sprawling and it, because it has such a bigger scope to it. It can lavish in such eccentric and morbid and wicked ideas. Yeah. I mean, I'll say um, like Jubilee is, it almost doesn't play to the family audience. So it's kind of, it is sicker and it's a lot darker and mm. and in some ways a lot funnier as well. But like Dalek's almost like a very condensed version, a very exciting version of the same story. Yeah, I, oh, definitely so. Um, I think whereas Jubilee is very focused on picking apart, and it's weird. Dalek and Jubilee have two very different intentions. Jubilee is all about critiquing the, and I think Rob, Rob Shearman has said this. Um, Jubilee is all about critiquing the audience's familiarity with the Daleks, mm. about how they're this kind of pop culture icon that we've all kind of accepted as harmless. Oh, God, is Whereas, that a wonderful scene, isn't there, where they have the Dalek juice? Yeah. What is it? Oh, it's just a bottle of juice with a picture of a Dalek slapped on it. Yeah. Whereas Jubilee, whereas Dalek, on the other hand, is all about legitimately reintroducing the Dalek as a genuinely scary monster. Yeah. Um, so they have different. So Jubilee is about they're both about making the Dalek scary again, um, but Jubilee is about is about the audience remembering that the Daleks are scary yeah. in 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 the scope of their history as kind of these. You know, pepper pot monsters. Whereas Dalek is that they're a threat right now. Yeah, they're 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 a threat. They've never been silly. And let's be honest, they are. It is a fantastically realised threat. The direction in this episode is a cut above anything we've seen so far. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a reason why the whole scene. You know where you have the doctor in the cell and the lights are out and the lights come oh, up. Yeah, and it's still one of the best scenes in the whole show. Um, Do you think this was like very much like the Daleks in series one of the classic series? Do you think this was the episode that really kind of cemented Doctor Who with the new audience? Because I remember there was a massive buzz after this episode. Like the first episode had gone down well, it was going quite nicely, and then everyone was going, wow. I remember my boss at the time, who wasn't a Doctor Who fan, said he rewatched this one three times on the same night. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I was like, oh. Um, it's, it's, there's probably some truth in that because it, in a way it feels almost unkind, but, you know. The, the the whole thing with the doctor as a character is that he can be anyone. So Tom Baker is in notoriously fond of saying nobody has ever failed in the past because nobody ever can. Um, uh, uh, whereas, so the doctor can be basically anyone, and now basically anyone from any gender now. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, whereas the Daleks. Um, I feel like in the public consciousness, they're a monster you have to get right. Like your version of Doctor Who hinges yeah. on whether you get them right or right or not. Like I think the Moffat era, um, uh, one of the, the kind of lingering um, 
hits against it is the fact that it came up with a redesign of the Daleks that just didn't oh, work. And people, yeah. and that was in its first series. I think people really still hold it against that version of the show. That was kind of Whereas, like that was kind of like oh, Steve Moffat's coming in. You had the eleventh hour. You had the beast below where everyone was like, yeah, it's okay, but okay, what's next? The Daleks. And then that design was wheeled out, and everyone was just like, oh no. Like it was the first kind of black mark, wasn't it, against the Moffat era? Yeah. Whereas here, you get them reintroduced, and I feel like we should stop to mention that that design for a second because it's oh. very steampunk and grounded, and you can see the rivets on the design. It's, it's the best, isn't it? There's a reason why they've gone back to it again and again. Yeah, there's a reason why it is the go-to design of the Daleks. It's like you said, they kind of had to get that right. Had they wheeled out the victory of the Dalek, Daleks in this? I just don't, I don't know. Sure probably would. No, I know. Like, like it's, it's, it's a weird thing because in some ways I feel like, you, particularly when we've talked about all the wonderful things the show was doing at this point, it got kind of, it's getting the Doctor right. Mm. It's getting, well, it's getting a, a 21st idea of the Doctor right. It's getting a 21st idea of the companions right. It's grounding them in this world. It's it's dramatic in the way it needs to be, which is as a character drama and a character-focused drama. And it's silly in the way it should be. Crazy, uh, a, crazy okay. imaginative, like super creative as well. Yeah, but if it had wheeled out the Paradigm Daleks <laughs> in Series 1, I don't think it necessarily would have continued. I, I think it, it would have kind of dragged at this point. If, if this episode had failed, followed by the long game, yeah, it would have been like a... a, a but instead, like the design... What, oh, my, I said the Supreme Dalek was the sexiest Dalek design. <laughs> this may, may be a competitor. Oh, it's gorgeous. And it's, it's still one of the best Dalek characters. Like you, you can't often say that, that there's a Dalek character... This is a character, mm. and it's a cl- and it's a clever bastard, isn't it? Mm. But you've got you've got like um, Nicholas Briggs giving like a genuine performance as this Dalek. Mm. Like, whereas you know you know you could say that you know the the Daleks of old people were giving performances, but this is a character drama between the Doctor and the Dalek. Oh no, definitely. Like you know. Uh, they did a, they rehashed the beat of it in Into the Dalek, but the bit where, you know, Doctor is going off at it on the computer, on the monitor, and he goes, well, you know, why don't you just die? And it just has, it savors saying you would be a good Dalek. Oh, yeah. And you can. That's a fantastic moment. And you, and like, I, like, the thing with the Daleks is that I think in the popular culture, they're, they're known to be like hateful creatures, but I think they're thought of as hateful robots. Um, yeah. Whereas in this story, you see how it kind of, how hate, how its own hate, it takes a lot of different shades and, no, and namely its hate allows it to be cunning and it allows it to be like savor its victories over its enemies in some regards. It savors its own cleverness. I, th- I think um, as well as because, of, because of its design, and it is an absurd design, the Dalek. It had to be perceived in this century as a threat. 
And they really succeeded there. Like it, it, it mm. kind of builds and builds and builds how it sucks in the internet. So that's an instant thing that kids are like, oh my God, it's just taking in the whole internet. Then it goes out and it um, absorbs the bullets that are coming towards it. The body's turning around and then it massacres all of those people. You know, it's like it escalates to a point where you're like, fuck, this thing literally could take on the world. Yeah, and it all builds up to, I think, the end of the series where the, what, the thing that this episode does very well in the, in the broader picture of what the, the, um, well, in the broader narrative of series one is it depicts how dangerous one Dalek is. So when you see an entire yeah. fleet of them like, at the end of Bad Wolf, Although like, that does oh have a God. detrimental effect, don't you think? And the, then suddenly on mass, they're very idiotic. Oh yeah, absolutely. As soon as you get like a bunch of Daleks, you can't you can't treat them as all as an army of super geniuses. <laughs> he gets to the point where Donna's doing a and to the left and to the right and to the right. Are you Davros? <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, anyway, that's that's the future. But, but yeah, absolutely. But it, at least for in the context of this series and that reveal at the end of the series that there are hundreds and thousands mm. of them it's it like justifies the fear of them absolutely um, and i have a question i have a question for you hit me do you, so obviously with this episode um it it's very obviously self-conscious about the broader public's jokes and uh, about the Daleks, about how they're easily defeated by flights of stairs, how they don't have legs, how the sucker. Kind of these awkward things. Yeah, the suckers and the egg whisk guns and the way they have to spin around with that whole torso. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, it it's kind of and it meticulous and it the part of the joy and the glee. Maybe not joy. Glee is the right word. The kind of macabre glee of the episode is that it so viciously targets all those public critiques of it, um, of the Daleks as monsters. Um, do you think, in the hindsight of 2005, that looks kind of, like, nervous or that looks confident? Like, it's nervous. Uh, no, 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 the Daleks are, like, legitimate. They're scary. Or it looks like, no, they've always been scary and you just didn't know. Uh, that's a really good question. Good grief. That's a question so good, I don't know if I can give it a decent answer. Um, I think it's it's very aware of the jokes about the Daleks in the past, how that's kind of seeped into culture and how everyone wheels out the same, you know, the same thing about Daleks not going upstairs and blah, blah, blah. I think it's, it's kind of um, saying, yeah, that's what you thought, but bang, these Daleks, they can go upstairs, they can suck you to death. You know they're powerful. They're strong. I think. I think. I don't think it's nerves, but I do think it is. It's correcting something that I kind of has been taken the piss out of before. It's it's making sure that you take this threat seriously going forward, mm. um, and it succeeds as well. I would say. Yeah, because I because personally, for me, I think. Because I, I think you've said this before, that one of the big noticeable differences between Jubilee and Dalek is the the lack of such gleefully horrible black comedy. Oh, uh, man. In, There's moments um, in Jubilee that, 
the bit where the the guy has his toy army of of life-size Daleks and he gets sent a midget who doesn't fit inside and so he chops off his arm and then puts him inside the Dalek. It's the sickest thing I've ever heard on audio. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But And you don't, obviously, for very sensible reasons, <laughs> you don't get that. What a shame. What a shame. Uh, Hinchcliffe would have done it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure if we interviewed, you know, what, 75-year-old Philip Hinchcliffe now, we'd be like, yes, let's do this. He threw a brain um, on the floor, for God's sake. He had a man transform into a plum. He would have thought nothing of chopping somebody's arm off. I, uh, look, despite the fact that it lacks that kind of sense of black comedy in Dalek, I think it definitely has... Um, it has a purpose, doesn't it? It has a... Yeah, but it has a glee in the way it kind of goes. You know, it has a character go up and go, what, what are you going to do? Sucker me to death. Yeah. And then immediately crushes his skull. I think that's where Rob Shearman's humour comes. What do you think of Rose in this story? Oh, she's brilliant. I think she's great in this story. I, I love her as the when she steps in front of the Dalek at the end. And she's like the mouthpiece for the Daleks, standing in front of the Doctor, holding the gun. Um, really strong, really strong. But, uh, Billy Piper's performance throughout this whole season are great. I'd say this and Parting of the Ways are probably her two strongest. Um, I, I think... Were you ever convinced that she was dead when that door went down and the, do you know, the Doctor shut the door? Were you convinced oh, that... Oh, no, no, no. They do try it, though, don't they? They do try Yeah. I mean, that would be a show to reckon with if they did murder off the companion halfway through the season. They, could, they, they couldn't possibly do <laughs> Well, they did it with Clara in Series 9. That's, you know what? You're right, Joe. About halfway through Series 1, we get the impossible girl arc. <laughs> um... What do you think of what, what do you think travels of Rose? to Victorian London and encounters a barmaid named Billy Piper? <laughs> she could do it. <laughs> Works the, the Rose and Crown. I, do you know what I will say about Dalek in that I, I do think it's really strong and I do think it's incredibly uh, dynamically directed. I do prefer Jubilee. I just think, you know, and that's. That's kind of unfortunate because it is probably the strongest episode today in this run that there is another story out there that this was based on that I prefer. It's just kind of a shame. Mm. How 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 do, would you sum up Dalek? Uh, how would I sum it up? Mm. I think, I mean, as far as acting performances go, a lot of people think of this as Christopher Eccleston's best performance, and I think... It's hard to argue with that in some regards. Certainly, um, the scenes in the, it, the scenes in the cell, and you know the bit where he thinks she's dead, and he's like, "Your collection, you're about as far from the stars oh, yeah. as you can get." That bit there, God, he's intense yeah. in that scene, isn't he? Tennant would have seriously it overplayed is. that scene, whereas Eccleston is mm. bang on the money. Yeah, like it's his definitely his best dramatic performance. Yeah. Like, uh, 
uh, and I think for Billy Piper as well, she does such a good job of selling because she's in the it's so interesting because she's in the role that Evelyn Smythe plays technically. Yeah. And you have and you have scenes that are that are kind of analogous to each other. Um, and you, and you, in one instance, you have a kind of fifty-year-old something woman, and then you have an age. I think Billy Piper is supposed to be an eighteen-year-old girl or nineteen. Um, and uh, and Billy Piper really kind of you get that sense of nervousness from her, but that sense that she genuinely kind of hopes this creature can you know it, it deserves its shot at the end to just see daylight um but yeah in in, in basically in, oh yeah you you again well you in idea. contrast there there is a fantastic you say there's uh billy piper shows how nervous she is maggie stables is even smart does that as well there's one scene where he says to her in jubilee are you frightened of me and she just screams out more than i can yeah, tell yeah, you awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah it's really powerful but they they do feel weirdly off they are very similar scenes in how they're scripted but with different actresses in the role they feel really different oh definitely yeah 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 i would say i think i stick by what i said at the beginning jubilee is the more imaginative story it's yeah. the funniest story and it's the sickest story by far. But now, I'd, I'd, I'd go back to what I said. It just has the time to do that. All of those things. Mm. Whereas Dalek, you know, at 45 minutes, it's telling the same story, but in, you know, really condensed time. It has to get to the point quicker. And I think it does an admirable job of doing that. Like I said, it has such a, it knows what its mission is. And on the one hand, it feels oddly reductive to say, mm its only mission is to successfully reintroduce the Daleks. That also ignores how horrendously challenging a task that is. And how um, superbly they achieve that. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's easy to look at something that has the imagination of Jubilee and kind of look at Dalek and go, okay, but it's not Jubilee. It doesn't, it, it's not do, it doesn't have as much on its mind. But Dalek, you know... It, it it has its own. It has so many strong scenes and strong moments, and it's it's it unrelenting is, is the word I would use. Fantastically to it. memorable television as well. I think people remember this one. Of all of those kind of early episodes, this is one of the ones that people can say, "Yeah, Dalek, that was one of the good ones." Yeah, and you know, I feel like Christopher Eccleston gets an, a hard rap. He's always got a bit of a hard rap because. You know, there are people who are just like, I oh, just skipped a tenant. Yeah. But I think a lot of that is to do with how he left the show, how quickly he left the show. Um, I think it's easy to forget when this was playing out, people were very impressed by him and fell in love with his doctor. Mm. If the show hadn't been a success in that first year, it never would have come back. Yeah. And, you know, this is also the episode that really properly sets up the time war as well. Yes, indeed. Yes, lots of details there. Mm, and I think, you know, all these years later, even though it perhaps isn't for, like, people who have listened Jubilee, it isn't the version of the story that, you know, is the one they would first reach for, I'd still oh, astonishingly... I 
I'd still, you know, I would watch this again and again. Come on, then. How, how would you rate it? Uh, nine. Oh, nine. Hey, I think if Jubilee didn't exist, I would give it a nine. But because it does, I'll give it an eight. It's, it's, it is very, very good. <laughs> and as ever... Oh, I, I was sure that the good people of IMDb was going to give this a nine. 6,265 people, and the average is 8.7. So close enough. Oh, okay. Are you one of these voters? I'm starting to think you are. You're very in sync. <laughs> I've rigged the game against you, Jeff. Oh, I believe that. Okay. Oh, here's the one I've been waiting for. Father's Day. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because I know you hate this episode. I loathe this episode with a passion bordering on insanity. I don't understand that. Please explain it to me. I hate, I just, well, I initially, first of all, I just hate the sheer stupidity of it. The stupidity of the doctor saying, oh, yeah, we'll go back and watch your dad die. Like, what? And then the double stupidity of saying, I'll tell you what, we'll go back and watch it again. Assuming like th- th- that from the start, I just can't get over that. One, why he would take her there. Two, why he would take her there again. And then he starts like blaming her for behaving. He's the one that took her there in the first place. And again. And then the whole episode starts to devolve into these dreadful EastEnders melodramatics with like, oh, you got what you wanted. Oh, well, whatever. You've been, you know, you've been lost without me. In a ter- Oh, God, it's just awful. Then all this weird shit starts happening. The TARDIS is suddenly, like, smaller on the inside than the out. Um, the, the, the first telephone call is going round and round. And I know the idea is, like, that time is fucked up, but none of it makes any sense. None of it is explained in any detail. It's just random, weird shit happening. And intersped with all this random, weird shit that's going on, you have all oh, these awful, maudlin scenes. The scene where he's like, oh, how did you see me? Oh, down the back alley. Oh, there's a life. It's just so obvious and so overdone and overwritten. I, I just hate this. I hate it. I, I, I feel like it's trying just really hard to make me feel really hard. It's like one of those god awful made for TV movies uh, where they where they're pushing the emotions. The music's overdone. The scripting is overdone. I I, I don't believe in any of it. Oh, I just don't like it. I'm sorry. I, I feel as if I've ranted there for a bit. And 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 so do you? Uh, even even oh, the execution no, bothers me. It's such an ugly looking episode. I know it's trying to be like the grim old eighties, but it really is. And um, even things like when Pete runs out in front of the car, the editing's really bad, so it doesn't actually look like he's been hit by the car. There's just there's just no real oh, part. They can come into that shot of the vase. The vase, yeah. It just it's just odd. Um. The Reapers have aged appallingly. And I know you can't, you know, I know it's very easy to kind of point a CGI, but that that really has aged very badly, especially the bit where it's like clawing at the church. Um, 
And I think as well, I mean, I, I am a man with uh, daddy issues. And I think um, that angle in this as well of her thinking like he was a superhero and it turns out he was a bit of a Dell boy. And I, I just think that's really obvious as well. There's, there's just no part of this that feels particularly skillful or delicate or nuanced. It's all very obvious. I, I have two questions for you. Oh, okay. Um, you need to stop me. Uh, one of the, I could keep going. Uh, we could be here all day. We could be here for a whole podcast. <laughs> of you just laughing about Father's Day. Uh, one of the questions I was going to ask is, do you think this is as much as you lo- seem to loathe the, the sheer existence of this episode, mm. do you think it's justified in series two when you see uh, Pete Tyler as a hugely successful businessman? I feel like the answer is going to be no. No, yeah. <laughs> just, just, just because I don't want to have to sit through it. Um, Fair enough. No. It... it uh, uh, Oh, this just exemplifies everything I dislike about Paul Connell's writing. There are so many things I like about his writing, but this is like a distillation of everything I hate about his writing. And that kind of leads me into my second question, which is, do you think this is kind of, for you personally, is this what you think the Russell T. Davis version of the show looks like for someone who's just like, oh, yeah, this is a, the worst nightmare. This is the worst nightmare version of the show. For someone who's like, God, it's just EastEnders meets Doctor Who. It's just soap opera and time travel. Well, I don't know how much Rusty Davis had to do with this, but certainly I'm sure he had some input, but certainly the episodes that he he writes that focus on the domestic drama are nowhere near as bad as this. It's He... he his episodes are like the, there's moments in parting the ways where they're going for that uh, normal life vibe that are beautifully written. Oh, I don't know. What do you think of this? You know, I didn't feel like this was going to be of all the episodes we've talked about. This was the one we were going to be so down the line on. Um, oh, you love it. Do you love it? No, 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 no. I wouldn't say I love it. I, I just like it. I don't love it. I don't particularly hate it. I like it. Admittedly, I haven't seen it in an incredibly long time. Don't but do it to yourself. <laughs> Jar, stop, let, stop letting your hatred so obviously bleed into this. My daddy! You're my daddy! Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Okay, you know what? I, I'll, <laughs> um, um, what sorry. You I'll put you off <laughs> your stride. I am... Um, I, okay, so what I think is about this. Um, with this episode in particular, I think it, it has a. I can see the st- the way that the starting premise of it, I, which is that you know. Rose Tyler, you know, only wanted to hop on board the TARDIS because she wanted to see her dead dad. Mm. And it's kind of, and I think the the way it's framed is kind of like, it's meant to be like one of those, you know, if you had a time machine premises 
Like, you know, if you had a time machine for us, the first thing you'd want to do is go and see your dead relatives or see, or see someone who's you've loved who's passed away or meet a father figure you've never met. I think it's aiming for that kind of, um, you know, kind of common sense approach to time travel, yeah. which is that. Uh, and that's that's you, fair enough. You wouldn't use it to, um, um, whether it succeeds, it seems to be, um, seems to be varying. But I do, I personally, I'm not too opposed to this idea that Jackie Tyler has spent all this time romanticizing this version of her husband who it turns out he wasn't all that. And Rose kind of has to deal with that at the same time as actually meeting the man that, you know, I think, I think that a lot of the strongest moments of this, of this story actually possibly come from, uh, Oh, please remind me. I should know her name who plays Jackie Tyler. Uh, Camille Kajuri. Yeah, Camille Kajuri. Um, uh, I think a lot of the strongest ever moments in this episode come from her because you have, you see present day Jackie who's kind of reminiscing so fondly about this husband of hers. And then you meet the, the Jackie Tyler in the 1980s who doesn't seem entirely happy with their marriage at all. Um, I think her Honestly, but those scenes with Jackie and Pete and uh, Rose where she thinks that she she's his like bit on the side. There's a reason why I don't watch soap operas, and this is the reason. It's it's similar kind of overplayed, uh, underwritten, and they're they're brilliant actors, and they're playing what's been written. I just find it all very mawkish and. Oh, it just doesn't appeal to me. It's just, it's just not my genre. I don't think. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Uh, I think one of the things I really like about this episode is that it, it takes a very particular approach to time travel, uh, and it's an emotional resolution to paradox rather than a logical resolution to paradox. It says. It, what it says is that, you know, in a, st- where it, in a world where Rose has, it's that line that the doctor has where it's just like, where she's like, the world hasn't changed at all. I just saved my dad. And it's like, the whole world is entirely different because there's a man in it who wasn't alive beforehand. Um, and the only way she can sort that, the, the, you know, she can sort that out is not with the doctor being clever and smart and the, it's kind of owning up to your own mistakes and uh, the consequences of your actions and living up to the choices that you have to make. But, but you're raising your finger at me. But what you just said but, there about you know going for the emotional rather than logical conclusion, oh, that introduced an element of that into the show that went on and on and that love conquers all style ending. It just got worse. And do you know what? I don't think it ever really works. It's there in Night Terrors, Doctor and the Widow in the Wardrobe, uh, Closing Time. Oh, it gets more and more syrupy and unbearable each time. It's an interesting new approach. Do you think think it begins in this story? Well, I'd certainly... I mean, he does choose to kill himself because... 
he loves them. Well, I'm not sure, but it but it is it is like a uh, a climax that is based around feelings rather than. I, I don't see that there's any logic in this at all, really. Why is the car going round and round all the time? Sorry, I'm gonna start ranting again. Why is the car going round and round all the time? Uh, is this is this is there something there that's saying this should have happened? So we're gonna put that car there and make it go up and down the road until he runs out. That's not where he died. He died like loads of streets away. Why is the phone ringing? What happens to the doctor when the Reaper takes him out? There's just too many questions. Do you know what? You know, I hadn't thought about that. That's really funny to me because I think the idea they're going for is that the car keeps following him around until he dies because that's what's meant to happen. But I quite, I think it's really funny. Just imagine, like, you know, Pete Tyler in this version of the timeline catches a flight to somewhere else in Europe. And as <laughs> the car goes past the window. Yeah, as the plane is, like, crossing the Atlantic Ocean several thousand kilometres beneath the plane, it just keeps spinning around on the top of the ocean. Oh, this, this, it just sort of leaves a nasty taste in my mouth. It's, it's, maybe I, I, I didn't think I was the sort of person that needed a kind of a very structured, logical story, but maybe I do, because I just don't like the randomness of this one. Or the ugly emotion you, that's in it. Do you know, uh, you know, I, I remember, particularly in the sort of high non-linear temp, uh, time travel hijinks of the Moffat era, I remember some people, I've read review comments of people going in like these paradox-heavy episodes in the, in the Moffat era going, wait a minute, if that happened, why didn't the Reapers show up? Um, and there's that's a part a of me that's kind of like, and just kind of like, I, I can, I can kind of picture you on the one hand being like, I mean, fair enough, but on the other hand, please don't give me the Reapers again. <laughs> or if you do, just do a better job of realizing them. Yeah, I think they turned up in a comic that Paul Cornell did later. He was okay. called, it was a Marvel Doctor story. It, I mean, the weird thing about this is, is, Father's Day is one of my least favourite Doctor Who stories. And Human Nature is one of my all-time favourites. It's in my top five. So it's not like I, 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 can't, I can't enjoy stuff that Paul, Paul Cornell's written. I just don't think this is very well written. I think it's very well acted. It's Joe Ahern directing this, and I think it's the weakest one he directs of the year. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, I, yeah. Again, it's just, it's, it's not my bag, baby. It's not my thing. All right, Joe. Well, it's not your bag, so why don't you tell us what you rate this story? Oh, a very generous three out of ten. <laughs> oh, jeez, Joe, you're not meant to be holding your yeah. punches back. Oh yeah, no, four would be too kind. Three. How about you? I, pending pending a rewatch, mm. I'm gonna say six. Okay, uh, and we're both out of step with IMDb this time because a walloping ooh, six thousand people give this an average rating of eight point four. What? Oh. 
6,000 people can't be wrong. What's wrong with us, Joe? Even on now, you know. What did you give it a six? Yeah. That's lower than I thought you were going to go, do you know? It's, I think I, I went with it because I haven't seen it in so long. So I was kind of like, yeah, Joe's making a bunch of good points, maybe, but also I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah, see, maybe you'd rewatch it and really love it. I mean, people tend to really love the performances in this, don't they? And people are genuinely touched by the story. So what do I know? Yeah, you're, we're going to come back next week and you'll be like, all right, we're going to talk about it. I'm going to Joe, Joe, I've just rewatched Father's Day. This is a 10 out of 10 story. You're wrong. Well, let's put it this way. I shan't rant again as we go through the Rusty Davis era this badly again until The Doctor's Daughter. Okay. Not well, even Fear Her. Okay. I can make a case for Fear Her. If you if you don't make that case, I'm reporting you to the council. <laughs> I love you, Chloe Webber. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. But hey, now look, this 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 has uh, uh, gone on now for quite some time. I think we should wrap up halfway through series one. <laughs> Why did I ever convince myself that we would get through the entirety of the Rusty Davis era in two hours? I won't do that again. I don't know. Um, but uh, let's let's pick up part two of the Rusty Davis era another time. I feel like we should still go through the entirety of the era, but um, intersped it with other episodes. So we'll put out part yeah, one. I, I think. I think so. So um, I, I'm going to ask you a question then. Oh yeah, go for it. Because I'm going to ask you what we're doing next week. Yeah, I know. Yeah, because I chose this week. So why don't you go ahead and tell me? Oh no! You you asked me the question. I didn't want you to ask. I'm doing, I'm doing a little dance now on camera. No one can see me, but... Yeah. You, you coward. Mm. You absolute coward. <laughs> um, we, well, I'm glad you asked that, Joe, oh. because next week we are... Uh, um, uh, uh, <laughs> you... <laughs> Ooh, what about defence and prosecution? Now, oh, come on. I would... I was going to say, you are going to defend the chase. Oh, yes! Let's Easy! Easy. I can give you a hundred reasons to defend the chase. Please don't do it in this podcast. We're already so over time. So, okay, if I'm going to defend the chase, Jack, what are you going to prosecute? So, uh, but, uh, just to say, uh, we've decided that um, I'm going to defend hang on i'm i'm defending a story i love aren't i so you need to prosecute a story you don't like is that right um well i thought we were just going to spend the whole episode talking about the chase oh oh okay okay i can do that i can spend two hours talking about the chase I mean, I can rewatch the chase and come up with all the reasons it sucks, but I feel like... Oh, no, do please, yeah. Let's do prosecution and defence. I'll, prosec- I'll defend and you prosecute. Okay, let's do that. Oh, I'll damn l- it. literally got away. Does that make me the Valyard? Yes, and that <laughs> makes me Colin Baker. Oh, so we're going to get some really tight close-ups of your flaring nostrils now. <laughs> Don't you know, my, my nostrils are lovely, thank you. I do. Fantastic cliffhanger face. 
Well, you know what? There's nothing that can prevent the catharsis of spurious morality. In all my battles, I fought against evil, against power-mad conspirators. I won't do the whole thing. Of Gallifrey Base. <laughs> Gallifrey Base. The commentators on my blog. Yes. They're still in the nursery compared to this podcast. Oh. If you have managed to um, get through the last five minutes of frippery, um, just to say we are available on about seven different platforms now. Um, no, I can't either. It keeps putting them on different ones. Uh, but I was going to say, if you would like, to, if you have listened and enjoyed, if you would like to leave a review, we would be very grateful on any of the Which platforms. Or even just click on one of the five, one to five stars, depending on what you And think. preferably the fifth one, but we will understand if you go lower. <laughs> Especially given we promised one thing at the beginning of this and have delivered about five or 50 episodes. <laughs> So what, so what Joe is trying to say is that if you feel betrayed, we understand, we hear you. We're not judging you. And, and, and we, will, we will try to be better next time. We will really try. We'll, we'll, we'll be a performed character. Um, yes, I mean... And I, I will also say you can also follow us on Facebook mm-hmm. and Twitter. Um, we're always there. Please get in touch. What's our uh, Twitter handle, Jack? What was that? What's our Twitter handle? Uh, uh, at Nymon Podcast, I believe. And on Facebook, it is just pop in the Nymon Be Praised, and there we are. So you can find us there. Chuck us a like, chuck us a follow if you so wish, um, uh, and get in touch. Tell us. You know, which which story would you prosecute? Or which no, um which which doctor would you like to see on uh, Cardiff Bay uh, <laughs> saying I burnt up a star just to say goodbye to which companion? <gasps> oh my god, I've got it. Oh, who have you got? Uh, Peter Cushing and Roy Castle. That is, I, I don't even, I've never seen, okay, cool, <laughs> I dig that. Doctor Who, I love you, because he's called Doctor <laughs> Who in those movies. Um, <laughs> oh, dude, there's just endless fun you can have with that. Uh, but a massive thank you for listening so far, and for anyone that has left comments, we are incredibly grateful. Yeah. On, on that yeah. note... I, I, are we going to do it at the same well, time? Well, we'll try, we'll try. Three, two, one. The Naimon. Oh, man. Be bloody praised. Naimon, be praised. Catch you next time. Catch you next time. Have a good day. Have a take care.